Hi, welcome again to Healthcare Marketing Insights for the week of April 20. I am Chris Bevelo, president of Interval, healthcare marketing firm that puts on the podcast. And we have with us today, Adam Meyer. Hello. And we have a guest with us today, Tom Stitt. And Tom, I'm going to give a brief introduction here. We'll put Tom's bio and a link to his website in our show notes. But Tom is the co-founder and managing director of Aperial Corp., a developer of patient-sourced social networks for healthcare, including PatientCast and BlockCast. And lots of good things in here. Tom, you do lots of good stuff with social media, with Twitter. We got to know each other uh, through, I think it was the hash 8 csm tweet chat that's on Sunday nights. Is that right? That's right. It's always great to turn those uh, Twitter conversations into direct telephone and, gosh, even sometimes face-to-face conversations. Yeah. So, and and you helped you helped start that tweet chat. Is that right? Or you you're a facilitator for sure. Yeah, Dana. Um, Dana is the uh, definitely the founder and the and the moderator. Uh, what I offered to do was come in and put some some infrastructure in place. Uh, Dana and I joke on Twitter all the time about you know the problems us old people have with Twitter <laughs> Twitter conversation communities. The uh, stream is generally fast and furious, and some of us like to look at it afterwards and figure out what it all means. So we helped set up a website and a Facebook page and a friend feed uh, room so that uh, you could digest some of the some of the uh, the tweets and the messages later in the week. Sure. Okay. Well, we're gonna we've got some topics that are specific to Tom. That I think he brings some great insight on some of the work he's been doing over the years. So we're gonna dive into that in just a second. But first, I wanted to throw out uh, kind of an interesting bit. We won't take too much time on it. Uh, but there was a, a news article from the Minneapolis Star, or Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal, I should say, yesterday. The headline reads, Park Nicollet won't send patients to new hospital yet. So, Tom, you might not be familiar with the Twin Cities uh, market, but there is a, a large system called Park Nicollet. There's another large system called Fairview, and they've partnered with an independent hospital called North Memorial Healthcare. So Fairview and North Memorial are opening a new hospital, which is a big deal in this market uh, because we had uh, COD limits on new beds for a long time in a, in a growing suburb called Maple Grove. And that's set to open, I think, this year. And so what was interesting was this: the story is basically that this competing hospital has either announced or responded to an inquiry that they will not be sending patients to this new competing hospital. Uh, And so I just found it very curious that this was even in the news uh, because I don't know why we would expect them to send patients to a competing hospital unless there's, you know, some kind of emergent reason. Uh, This happens all the time. But, you know, some of the some of the posts I'm seeing in Twitter, for example, there's you know, there's a little bit of outrage and people are saying, well, what about the patient? And is, you know, this just isn't the best thing for the patient. And I just thought, well, why is this even in the news? You know, we see this happens all the time. Nobody else would, you know, Best Buy wouldn't announce that, hey, there's a new Circuit City if they were still around opening you know, next door. And we may send some of our customers over there. It just really depends on how you look at these all non-for-profit in Minnesota, but still, these are businesses who have to compete for patients. Right, right. You know, also, one of, the, one of the reasons in the story that they gave for not wanting to send patients to that new hospital is that the hospital has no proven, quote-unquote, no proven track record. <laughs> the, hospi- the hospital is create. it's a joint effort between North Memorial and Fairview, which are two systems in town that definitely have a proven track record, um, as does Park Nicollet. Um, so that to me, it seemed like kind of a bogus 
reason or justification, but... Yeah, well, Chris, Chris and Adam, you know, I, I think uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is maybe a good thing because um, I think as Chris and I have uh, exchanged tweets during conversation communities, um, hey, competition sort of spills out into the public view, and, um, you know, next thing maybe we'll see them actually talking about the fact that there just aren't enough elective private pay patients um, to make a go of it. So, I'm, I, you know, I, I think this is probably happening elsewhere it's just i agree with you it's unique to see it out in the open for a change right right i'd also say that we're going to see um a lot more discussion very soon about uh they call i think with new construction they call it shelling uh sections of hospitals meaning they they build the walls but they don't go ahead and install any of the equipment i'd even say that some cases we're going to see mothballing of uh, newly constructed hospitals yeah the numbers just don't work yep um they just don't work. It's a sign of the times that in certain markets, basically, um, hospitals are either overbuilt or a guy I, I tweet with calls it, you know, the, the medical arms race, the medical equipment arms race has sort of been out of control. We have too many uh, adjacent or same market hospitals and private surgical centers offering the same services mm-hmm. um, and, you know, beating each other up for um, a small number of elective private pay patients. So I don't know. What do you guys think is going to happen? Well, it's it's interesting in this market because if you knew it, North Memorials, just imagine, you know, kind of a map. They're in the northwest quadrant. Uh, they're, they're a great institution. Uh, they kind of own that area. But they're kind of a first, they're in the first ring of suburbs, and this hospital is going out in about the second or third ring, a really fast-growing area that needs a hospital. So if, if North Memorial hadn't really been the, the selected hospital, because there was a big, long process to figure out who was going to get to build this hospital, uh, they really would have been in trouble. It really would have cut them off from uh, a lot of patients. Yet... The fact that they're billing this uh, isn't necessarily going to double their patients. In fact, they're going to be cannibalizing quite a bit from themselves. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes talk about, well, are they going to be able to survive this? Because, uh, you know, as soon as they're going to be adding cost, adding technology, like you talked about, Tom, hiring staff, yet it's not like this doubling of cost is going to, is going to be uh, balanced by a doubling of revenues or patients. Uh, really, it's it's going to be you know seventy percent or sixty percent or something because they're going to be taking from their own main source, North Memorial itself. So uh, we'll see how that fares. I think it goes to what you're talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think you know another thing you just mentioned um, the the sort of assumption that geographical presence um, is is necessary or you you need a hospital in a community. Uh, to serve that community. I, I, I think more and more you have to question that. Uh, I'm certainly seeing more and more indications that domestic medical tourism is having a serious impact on uh, community or, or uh, geographically adjacent hospitals and communities mm-hmm. where specialists, um, even, even primary care doctors, are discussing whether patients should use the local hospital or the nearby hospital, or whether they should consider traveling someplace where the outcomes, at least the ones that are published, are better for a specific procedure. So um, I think, I think uh, you know, the situation you've got locally is, is happening everywhere. Uh, people just aren't talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it will be interesting to see where this goes. And, uh, you know, typical, typical downturns of economies, you see a flushing out of the weaker 
kind of species and the stronger survive, but it's, it's doesn't work quite that way in, in healthcare provider side anyway. And so it'll be interesting to see if we see some of the things you're talking about, the mothballing or closing of facilities, but let's move on to a topic, Tom, that uh, I know is really close to you. Uh, You've done a lot of work. We've, we've spent, let me back up a second. We've spent a lot of years uh, from a healthcare marketing perspective, talking about the important role the patient experience plays uh, in these things we're talking about, building competitive differentiation, for example, uh, showing why somebody should uh, come to your facility or use your physicians or use your service line compared to others. Uh, we think it goes so much further beyond the clinical expertise and the quality that, that people usually focus on. Uh, and I know you've spoken a lot about that in, in Twitter, uh, and you've spent a lot of your time recently on that area. And one of the specific things uh, that you've done that I think was really interesting is interactive TV. Uh, in hospitals and the role that can play and maybe how that's a form of social media. So why don't you give a little bit of background about what you've been doing in that? Sure. Yeah, I, I like to tell folks I'm, I'm sort of a last-mile marketing guy, um, which uh, I take to mean sort of I, I like doing the marketing stuff that most marketing people don't like to do, and uh, that generally involves that, that last mile of the of the customer relationship. And in, in the case of interactive television, that's sort of the place where the network meets the customer, or if we were in TV world, we'd call it where the carriage meets the customer. It's also, also the place where the content um, has to have context, regardless of how fast or how heavily featured the uh, network has to be. So uh, in terms of, of my experiences with interactive TV, what I found was that um, most of the things that we were doing 10 or 12 years ago just didn't work. And I always use the, you know, order a pizza on TV via the Internet as the example. You know, gosh, I must have seen 20 different ways that you could do that. Uh, but the reality was that it, it didn't make any sense right. for people in their living rooms or um, really even in their hotel rooms um, or hospitals. But what we did find over the years as we worked, with, especially with the hospitality customers like LodgeNet and um, GuestLink is that interactive television was highly relevant to the experience of someone who was away from home uh, in a hotel, perhaps in a hospital room, or what the, uh, what the folks in the television space like to call digital out of home, uh, meaning they're, they're having some sort of a viewing experience, but they're not doing it uh, in their living room. And right. to me, to me, there were sort of two key questions that come up. One is, you know, people in hotel rooms and hospital rooms, they want to stay in touch, and they also want something that relieves anxiety. They, um, they, they, they would read books, or if they could, they would watch movies. So that's, that's sort of a, a way of getting into, uh, well, a way of looking at uh, how I look at the interactive TV space. And um, then, you know, if you're interested, I can give you some examples of how I, I think that relates to the patient experience. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you give a few examples? So um, I, I think the, the project, one of the projects I worked on most recently involved St. Joseph Hospital of Orange. It's uh, about a 400-bed hospital in, uh, in Orange County, uh, north of San Diego, south of Los Angeles. And um, the, the system we installed there was sort of state-of-the-art uh, that were anywhere from, uh, tw- I think, 27 to 32-inch TVs installed in all the patient rooms, uh, all, all the bells and whistles, including uh, Internet on TV. But the thing that turned out to matter the most um, to, the, to the patients, we learned over time, was that they could get the local high-definition television stations in their room, and huh. more important than that, the channel position 
of those stations pretty much matched up with what their experience was at home, uh, whether they were using terrestrial or using cable. And gosh, that may sound like a really um, small thing, but uh, it was it was one of the lessons we learned early on in the interactive TV space was um, don't mess too much with people's television viewing experience. Um, add incremental value. Don't don't change the uh, don't change the context very much. And um, so what we found from that was was uh, patients and families actually remembered the fact that they got pretty good high definition TV reception um, while they were there. And I, I don't know what what do you think of that? Is that is that is that worth mentioning in the, the great marketing that you guys do? You know, yeah, I think. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, I I myself, I'm a I'm a tech guy. I mean, I, as we sit here recording the show, I've got three computers around me. <laughs> a whole bunch of musical equipment behind me, and this is what I, you know, this is what I spend my days doing. I love it, um, and I have high definition TV. We've got three flat screen TVs in our house in different locations, and it is a major frustration of mine when I go as somebody who knows tech and who is familiar with setting up this stuff and who's familiar with working with my TV to go in and sometimes try to find the high-definition channels, especially in the way that my cable provider has them set up, makes me want to pull my hair out. And that's from somebody you know who knows tech stuff. So for people who don't, I could only imagine how frustrating it must be to try to, to dig into those channels and find them. So to have them laid out in a manner in which you're already familiar with, yeah, that's something, that's something I'm going to remember for sure. I, what, what, it, what, it, what it reminds me of is just the... I think of when I go on vacation and I stay at a relative's house and we go to Montana every year and the disorientation that I have of trying to find even their local channels because the numbers are different. So here, for example, CBS locally is channel four. If I want CBS, you know, their local channel, it's so confusing to think that it's six or it's seven or it's 14. And, you know, you never think about it. I don't think about it ahead of time. It doesn't keep me up at night. But now that you say that, Tom, I can reflect back and think about when I'm in hotel rooms or when I'm uh, visiting someone and that, and that kind of disconnect and, and that uncomfortable feeling that you get from, oh, wait a second, where is, you know, where is NBC? I don't know where it is. And how weird that NBC here is seven. That's just odd. So it's, it's really interesting that you guys uncover that. And I think it, how it ties back to marketing is, Boy, it really helps to get in there, A, if you can ask people and really get in their shoes and, and figure it out. But you know what? If you had asked people about that, I don't think they would have been able to tell you until they'd experienced it. And that's where prototyping comes in. That's where you know running some tests and, and, and trying it out with pilots, that's where you would learn that. Because I really don't think that if you had asked people about that, anybody would have been able to right, articulate right. Uh, what I'm talking about anyway. Right. Yeah, and, and you make a great point. I mean, um, we we had that on it when we went through our discovery process at St. Joseph's and interviewed about 40 different departments, almost 250 people. Um, the nurses were just great at giving us um, crisp, clear uh, ideas on what was going to uh, improve or adversely affect the patient experience. And the, the channel map issue was probably in the top three where they said more people pressed the nurse call button because they couldn't figure <laughs> out where to find their favorite channel um, than almost anything else. So we, we really got a double win out of this. We, we got patients and families um, happier, and nurses were happy because the bell wasn't ringing. Um, uh, to have them right. come down the hall and say, right, NBC is oddly enough on channel 126. <laughs> 
So right. uh, anyway, it's it's what amazes me. This is a real cheap thing for most hospitals to do, and and many of them have upgraded to flat panel TVs. You see. LCDs and plasmas uh, in a lot of hospital rooms today. But right. uh, back to Adam's point, <laughs> about 95% of the time you turn it on, and what do you get? You get good old analog NTSC, yep. uh, which I always said stands for never the same color. <laughs> and and you get sort of the, it's, it's like going back to black and white. Um, you know, it's uh, the patient, most of those elective patients have got high-definition programming in their homes, why not? Why not make sure the experience matches up a little bit with what they've got in their living room? Um, so uh, anyway, that was one one lesson we learned. Uh, Want to hear some other ones? Well, you know, uh, one, one other yeah. thing that I think is frustrating about about that example, and probably some of the other ones that we'll hear, is that when you talk to caregivers, some people who haven't been through a scenario like that, they look at these little things. And that's what they ref- a lot of oftentimes in our what we've seen is that that was what they refer to them as these little things that don't matter. They don't need to worry about them. But these little things oftentimes are the things that patients and their families take away from from these experiences and what they remember. It's just it's ironic. Yeah, very frustrating to, a you know, a chief orthopedic surgeon when, you know, they think that, hey, they're going to they're going to love me because I'm the top guy in Minnesota. And all they you know talk about is the HD, the lack of it or how great it was. I mean, I understand how somebody in the in the caregiver role gets frustrated by that. But that's part of what we're trying to help them understand is it doesn't mean that what you do isn't important or vital, obviously. uh, But it's these little things that can make a big difference. So, Tom, I want to give you a chance to talk about one other thing, but did you have one other example you wanted to give? Well, I was going to do sort of a small segue over to the social media side. Um, so, you know, as, as, as we worked in hospitals really exclusively the last four or five years, we, we also heard a lot from um, our clients and from patients and from others about um, other, other issues that, to me, are in the same sort of non-clinical patient experience category. And that all fascinated me. So about was it last October, I actually started harvesting data from places like Twitter and blog comments and Google alerts and all kinds of places. And I, I focused in on three or four uh, keywords, um, patient uh, hospital TV, hospital Wi-Fi or wireless, and hospital food. And uh, I don't know, would you like to hear sort of the short uh, conclusions there? Yeah, I think that would be great. Uh, the, the Wi-Fi one to me is the most interesting, and I've, I've talked to healthcare, IT news, and others about it. Um, patients are generally, and, and families are thrilled when they discover that a hospital offers Wi-Fi, e- even if they have to go someplace and get authorization for it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in Twitter, you just, see, you just see a lot of praise and surprise. Uh, there, my my favorite uh, data point there is that that new parents are especially excited when they discover that the hospital has Wi-Fi, and then they're even more thrilled when they discover that they can post the important news on Facebook or Twitter, or they're slightly disappointed if those things are blocked. So uh, sure. I'd say an easy patient experience uh, winner for most hospitals that have wireless is uh, make sure the, the new parents can uh, get access to Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Do you think that some of them do that intentionally so that they have to use the, I don't even know what they're called, but there's Caring so many. Bridge and what was it, Adam? Caring Bridge, I think, is one of the popular ones. Right. So they have their own kind of things set yeah, up. Yeah, the care page services like mm-hmm. uh, Care Pages or Caring Bridge. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, uh, what I almost see no mention of those things on Twitter or Facebook. Instead, what I, or I'm sorry, uh, in my surveys of folks, um, people are focused on on Twitter, Facebook, 
occasionally MySpace pops up. Um, see very few references to those two dedicated services that you mentioned. Right, right. Uh, to me, that makes perfect sense. Uh, if, if it were me in that situation, I'm going to use the tools that I'm familiar with and comfortable. I'm not, right. not going to go and start up a caring book or a caring care pages or, or a caring – I can't remember the name of the other one now. I'm not going <laughs> to start one of those because I've already got resources that I use that are tapped into my entire social network. If I want to let people know that we just had a baby boy or a girl or that I just had a successful surgery – I'm going to go to those tools where I'm going to let everybody know, not to a new tool that I'm going to have to then broadcast somehow, some way to let everybody know to go to this new one and maybe have to create an account to even see anything. Right. Um, it's, it's, it makes perfect sense. Now, and I'm guessing that a lot of these networks have those sites blocked or locked down because they, don't, they simply don't want their employees accessing it and they don't want to devote the time or resources or whatever to simply opening up that wireless access point, whether they... I mean, it's, it seems simple enough. You provide a username and password that's not locked down, and that's what you let your patients log in with. But I sure, yeah. I think the technical side of it is, is pretty easy with virtual virtual right. uh, VPNs, virtual private networks. But uh, anyway, just the other one I'll, I'll touch on quickly is food. Um, uh, you know, there must be uh, at least 10,000 jokes about hospital food uh, <laughs> that you read. But um, so far, my data, uh, and maybe it's skewed, but is is trending very much toward at least 50% of the people who eat hospital food being pleasantly surprised and praising it. So again, I, I think another there's another opportunity out there in social media, and, and if I can cross back over to interactive television, um, to actually overcome a perception that hospital food is universally bad. Um, right. I've certainly spent enough time now in hospital basements and other areas to know that there's a pretty strong emphasis on upgrading both the quality and the presentation of food in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, and it's, as I think Chris said, you know, Chris, or one of you said earlier, patients tend to remember that stuff more than they remember the surgery mm-hmm. right? The procedure. And uh, it's just, um, I think it's an interesting opportunity for hospitals to, um, to focus on something that the average person can relate to. So uh, it's interesting. The, the other interesting finding there, of course, was that uh, there's a, a, a band called the Eels, and they have a, they have a song called Hospital Food, which <laughs> I didn't know before I was doing this research. But um, actually, I actually downloaded the song now from Amazon and listened to it occasionally. Now that's an example of, of you know, decades-old perceptions uh, where you, know, you can come in, and because perceptions are so bad, expectations are so low, it doesn't take a ton to, to beat them. Uh, and, you know, we all hope that that changes over time. That's just going to make it tougher to, to beat the expectations. But, Tom, I do want to give you a chance to talk about uh, something called conversational health care because uh, you had mentioned to me that you're uh, working on a book, and I was very curious to kind of hear. I know it's kind of tied to what we've talked about, but why don't you give a little background on what, what it is you're diving into? Sure, sure. Yeah, an old, old friend of mine, Shell Israel, and I, um, who, who are neighbors, actually, um, Shell's, Shell's just finishing up a book called uh, Twitterville. Uh, before that, he wrote a book called Naked Conversations with Robert Scopel, which was sort of the seminal book on business blogging. Anyway, Twitterville is um, coming out in September, and that's going to be a book about how um, businesses are using Twitter to um, start conversations and really improve relationships with customers in ways that are I think interesting. Anyway, I kept telling Shell when he was writing Twitterville that he really had to take a hard look at some of the things that were going on in healthcare, and um, uh, he finally agreed and ended up um, doing a blog posting about the uh, first Twitter surgery that Henry Ford Hospital did 
uh, way back when, back when that was actually news. I guess it was news again today. But um, uh, out of that, we started the discussion about social media and healthcare, and um, we, I think, convinced each other that a book might make uh, sense. And not a book about uh, technology, not about how to use blogs or how to use Twitter or uh, how to use YouTube or any of those things, um, but a book that was really about um, patients taking charge of, mm-hmm. of health care, their own, and uh, also taking charge of change in health care. So um, that's, that's where the inspiration came from. Some of the uh, things that we, I think President Obama says he still gets about 10,000 letters a day uh, about health care. Um, right. I think that's, that's, probably, um, that's probably one indication that there's a lot of uh, interest in this. So what, um, what we thought we'd do is while everybody else is busy writing a book about, uh, I don't know, changes in electronic health records or personal health records or single payer versus the current system and all those really complicated um, policy, practice, and technology issues, we thought we'd go out and talk to patients who are actually changing the way healthcare is delivered. And um, so anyway, that was the that was the inspiration for the title, Conversational Healthcare. I, I wanted to call it um, uh, Code 2.0, uh, the, the <laughs> e-patient emerging power. But Shell, who's a much more experienced author, looked at me and said, you know, most people won't understand what a code is, so we'll we'll stick with something that's um, easier to understand. <laughs> yeah, I think you made the right choice in your title. I like that. So, so when when are you hoping that this will be out? Well, um, we're still in the process of, of wrapping up a publisher deal. We're actually looking at a self-publishing model rather than a traditional publishing model. But we we think the right time to put the book out on the market is sometime uh, late Q1 next year. Sure. Uh, we think that timing will match up with. Uh, some of the some of the uh, initiatives that the Obama administration has announced. Uh, we also think, realistically, uh, that gives some of the social media initiatives that we see happening in healthcare time to um, to take root and um, show whether show whether they can uh, provide meaningful change. Cool. Well, good luck with that. And we look forward to you should update people through Twitter as it goes along. And then we look forward to seeing it promoted about this time next year for sure. Yeah. Well, assuming Shell, uh, who will be the primary author, works the same way we have in the past, you'll get you'll get updates every day in Twitter. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, I think we need to wrap it up right now. So I'm going to say, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We'll have to do this again. That was some great insights. And I know. I'm sure we could keep talking and talking, so I'd love to have you back and uh, provide some more of the stuff that you found over the years. Well, thanks, Chris. And uh, if you get out to California, let me know. Absolutely. I will do that. And so for Interval, this is Chris Bevelo. Adam Meyer. And Tom, again, thanks for joining us. And we will talk to everybody next week. 